Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein. My guest today is Sarah Marlo Christensen. And Sarah has an interesting story. Uh, you know, uh, for those of you who have gotten into um, listening to uh, audiobooks instead of just reading them or, uh, lo- or reading them on Kindle, there's a lot of ways to read a book now, isn't there? Uh, might, uh, might get a little bit of a glimpse, maybe even heard, uh, heard Sarah before. She, uh, uh, she spends a lot of time as a, um, as a narrator of, uh, of audiobooks. And uh, I've recently actually taken taken this up as uh, um, as a, as a way to listen to and and read books. I like actually to read the hard copy. I like to read it on Kindle, and I like to read it. I like to listen to it um, um, in the same way that you probably are listening to this podcast right now. And uh, but the voice of the person that is um, narrating the book is so so important. You know, my own books. Uh, I had a. Um, um, I had a narrator, and it was a whole big production, and uh, and they did a great job. But I had a bunch of people ask me why why didn't you do it yourself? And uh, as Sarah is going to going to explain, I think it's a lot of work. It's not so easy to do. But I am uh, I am tempted, and I think if I ever write another book, and I'm sure I'll, I'll end up doing that at some point, uh, I'm going to narrate that one my, myself, and uh, maybe I'll ask uh, Sarah for some for some tips. Uh, with Sarah, we talked about uh, performance. We talked about speaking, storytelling, and and I uh, I uh, I do a lot of uh, a lot of speaking all over all over the world. And so, being able to put yourself in a position to do a good job and to convey the the, the message you want to connect emotionally with with an audience is so uh, is so important. It's important in everyday life when we're having a conversation with someone, and it's certainly important in a in a professional uh, in a professional setting as well. And um, and Sarah's just so so thoughtful and so experienced and uh, so capable uh, that uh, it made uh, made for a great conversation. Uh, now now a, a bit of a mea culpa. So this. Um, this podcast is the first one that I ever recorded myself without my trusty producer next to me. So I'm going to blame him for this. I was in New York uh, to uh, to meet with Sarah, and um, and so I had to do all of the uh, technology myself. And it's not all that complicated, but of course I messed it up, and so we lost the beginning of the uh, of the uh, podcast. So I'm sorry about that, Sarah, and I'm sorry sorry about that for everyone else. But we got almost everything, and that's good. And that's why I think when we start. Uh, we kind of launch uh, right into it when I asked Sarah about what she studied in, in college at, at Dartmouth um, and, and why why that was uh, why that was history. So uh, okay, so you know this is um, the Sidcast is uh, not really edited very much because that's the way a conversation is, and I guess today's uh, uh, today's episode uh, is going to be really good proof of that. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll be talking to Sarah Malo Christensen. So uh, why, uh, why history? Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to study when I first went, um, and I took a lot of history and English courses, but I'd had a really wonderful history teacher in high school, um, Dr. Lillian, who had just sort of, he was such a big and magnetic presence and so fascinated in what he taught that he really um, just drew people in. And so I got really interested, uh, I think partly because of him and felt like maybe that would be a nice combination of sort of studying personalities and Mm -hmm. more, you know, overarching Mm -hmm. history stuff, um, more so than just looking at like literature, which at the time felt sort of, I think a little less important to me like right. in the world yeah I, I'm, I'm always um, amazed how many people mention a high school teacher for something yeah um, and also college teachers and sure. others uh, the impact is is tremendous yeah um, completely yeah uh, my high school teacher uh, one of them was an English teacher and um, I think it was his 10th grade and um, you know you write papers or assignments for com- English composition or some mm-hmm. such thing and he um, he he handed it back and he had a couple of notes and then at the top he says you know you you, you know how to write you should think about this yeah <laughs> and, and he said like, oh, what yeah <laughs> where'd that come from I know how to play you know baseball my friends I know right. how to hang around uh, I was a good student but that was like you're kidding me yeah um, the power really of uh, I mean not just uh, not just this is interesting because parents say things like that too yeah but you don't uh, listen to your parents no it's not yeah. the same right <laughs> it's not the same because you know they're you know, they have a vested interest. That, yeah, yeah. And you often know they're uh, yeah they 
they're going to say it. That's what parents say. Teachers don't have to say that. No, they don't have to lie to you. <laughs> yes, they don't have to. But the, um, I think teachers, you know, when you talk to teachers of retired, one of the greatest things is when, you know, former students write them now, email them, yeah. Facebook them or some such thing. And it's, uh, it's a great thing. Yeah. And just that feeling of it, it feels so special to have to, to think a teacher saw something of value in you and wanted to tell you. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it just feels, um, I had a, a teacher in middle school as well who just made me feel really like seen and valued and um, it's incredibly important. Right. And powerful. Right. So, uh, so um, Dartmouth, uh, what did you do when you graduated from Dartmouth then? Oh, I went home and lay on the couch for a couple months and didn't know what to do with my life. Uh, well, first I led hiking trips for teenagers in the mountains of North Carolina for a month or two. And then I went home and lay on the couch. Um, it was a, that was a hard transition for me because I had been really good at school and really sort of thrived on that structure. Yeah. And when that was gone, you know, that was all I, that was where I'd found my satisfaction and self-worth and value since, you know, you haven't, when you graduate college, you, you don't know yourself not in school, right? Right. Um, and so that was a tough time. Um, I worked for um, a documentary production company called Smash, uh, which was led by um, Rick Bayer and who actually... Uh, recently reached out to me because he was assigned to interview me for the alumni magazine. Really? Yeah. Which they, oh, that's funny. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, uh, and so that felt like a really, I, I had interned with them as well during my junior winter mm-hmm. or whenever that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really interested in documentary production because that felt like storytelling and history and all those things I liked. Um, so I did that for a while. Um, maybe, seven or eight months. Uh, and then I decided I kind of wanted a, a new fresh start. So I thought I'd look for jobs in publishing because that seemed doable. My mom was sort of in a wing of publishing and it just seemed like that might be a good fit. Right. So this is interesting that that you were lying on the couch after doing your first job. (laughs) And I'm sure there are a lot of people that did something like that. I mean, there's the proverbial living in the basement uh, of your parents' house. Um, Why is a transition so tough for so many smart kids, do you think? I mean, I think you just, or I, you know, I can only speak for myself, but I think I felt really lost because I think that the way that I had felt good about myself was by doing well in school. Mm-hmm. And then that was no longer available. <laughs> and right. so like, what do I, what do I do? And where do I like find val- How do I know that I have value if I'm not finding it in grades, which is something I obviously should have learned before mm-hmm. I graduated from college, but I don't think I really did. Um, so I felt really directionless um, because I had clung so tightly to the structure and direction of, Academics. Were you able to articulate it in the way you are now no, to your parents? No, you I were don't just think sitting so. there not yeah. feeling good. I, I was saying, just what depressed. the hell am I going to do? Yeah, I was just depressed. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, definitely not. Uh, Why is it that universities, because that's a big debate, of course. I'm a big fan of the liberal arts. You're a product of the liberal arts. But there are a lot of people with a lot of different views about that. Sure. Uh, and it does not train you for any direct career. Yeah. Uh, now, the counter-argument, of course, is teaches you how to read, to write, to think, to ask questions, and that's valuable in any career. For sure. Right? But not really hands-on skills for no, hardly anything. Mm, no, I don't know. I mean, I think I, I am a big believer in it. Um, even though I ended up doing two jobs, uh, which, again, we'll get to, but training dogs and narrating audiobooks that I could do with it eighth grade education, do you like, um, but I think learning how to write and think is incredibly valuable, but also just, I think I came out of Dartmouth with a sense that I had the right to, uh, that I was capable and smart and had sort of the right to be in the room. Mm. Like I, I mm. deserved a seat at the table. It gave you confidence, self-confidence. Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, which I don't think everybody necessarily, I think 
there's also privilege wrapped up in that. And mm-hmm. I'm like, of course I deserve to be here. Like, right. I, you know, um, and in a lot of ways I do have a lot of privilege just by being, you know, upper middle-class white person from Massachusetts. Like there's mm-hmm. a lot of tables I'm already welcome at through virtue of doing nothing. Right. 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 Um, but I think that being able to express myself clearly and kind of feel comfortable in conversations with a wide range of people did really give me um, a confidence that has really helped me in all of the careers that I've been in. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And it's interesting that, you know, you were good at school. You kept going at school. School's done. What are you going to do? What are yeah. you going to do next? Yeah. Um, uh, and everyone has to kind of figure that out unless you start to focus maybe in college or through some right. connection typically uh, into a particular line of work. Um, I, I actually had a similar thing, yeah. <laughs> except I, w- I was like, I was good at school and I loved school. So I kept, I stayed in school. I just kept yeah, going. I thought about that I'd too. Going yeah. and going and going and going and going. I'm still in school. I'm a professor at university at right. Dartmouth. So I never left. Right. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's definitely not for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> no, I thought about it. Um, but yeah, that's a tough road. If you, if you want to go into liberal arts, um, being a professor in the liberal arts, I just didn't want to end up an adjunct at 40 living in a studio uh, yeah. eating soup. Well, <laughs> wow, that does not sound good. That, that's and what you're describing. I mean, it's true. It, academia has become a, a, a really a, um, a winner-take-all industry. Yeah. A lot of industries are like sure. that. Um, they're hugely uh, unequal uh, in terms of opportunity and, and payoff. And part of it is, you know, talent, capability, success, but part of it is also privilege, you say, and other, other things. Right, and luck, yeah, just being... Luck, yeah. absolutely. It's really, it's, it's amazing, really, think about it, because there are so many people in academia that are adjuncts, it's true, and they go from one university to another, teach a little bit, uh, but that's true, um, it's true in, in film and, and theater as well, isn't mm-hmm. it? Which I think you also... For sure, yeah. Were trying to get into at one point. Yeah. <laughs> what happened there? For a long time. So, um, so I, I, I did go, I did go into publishing for a year and I was an editorial assistant at Penguin, um, which was interesting, um, but didn't really feel super fulfilling. And it was hard to see a path forward, um, that would be satisfying. So, after a year, I quit and went to acting school and apprenticed to a dog trainer, <laughs> which I'm sure... Nice transition. I, yeah, I know. I sort of blew it up because um, uh, I just wanted something different. And yeah, maybe that's not particularly honoring that expensive Ivy League education. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I apprenticed to a dog trainer for the two years that I was in acting school. And and what, then, what's acting school? What? Um, I went to a conservatory program, which is like a... Um, it's sort of the equivalent of a graduate degree, except that you don't come out with a master's um, and you can't teach. Um, but, you know, it's acting classes and speech training and um, voice and body work and all that stuff, sort of preparing you to huh. uh, go into an acting career. So, you know, that type of skill set is becoming more and more valuable in business. I know. Yeah. I have friends who teach seminars who get paid a ton to yeah. go stand in front of a group of business people and talk about how to present yourself with confidence. They use the word and, executive presence, yeah. right? <laughs> um, it, it's really kind of amazing. Yeah. I mean, body language is really powerful mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. people pull all these cues without even realizing it from the way you hold yourself and the right. way you speak and right. all that stuff. So you have great posture. Is this part of it? Oh, I mean, it looks like I do, but I really don't. Like, I've <laughs> I, I, uh, I've always, I think, appeared to have good posture, but I have, like, all this tension in my shoulders and back and neck and jaw that I'm always working on. Um, Where did that come from? I don't know. Being Just... an uptight person. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like there's, it didn't come from anywhere. Um, but now that I am still so much narrating audiobooks during the day, it's become yeah. a real problem. So, yeah, I appear to have good posture, but it's not true. Okay. Well, you're fooling <laughs> me. I fake it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, while, it was two years in school? Mm-hmm. It wasn't full-time, was it? Yeah. It was full-time. Yeah. And so, do you do acting gigs as you're going along? No. Nothing. You just do school. Wow. I mean, it's like graduate work. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. And do they help you get a job after that? No, they don't. Another one without the job. <laughs> what is it with these schools? I know. <laughs> I know. And the one I went to didn't even, 
generally graduate programs like that have a showcase at the end mm-hmm. that everybody does little scenes for and agents and managers are invited. Okay. Um, but mine didn't. So, no. <laughs> so so the, you're, you're off on your own yes. to try to figure yeah. out and get some gigs and do yeah. Some? I mean, I did. I did okay. I, I, uh, Were you in any movies that we? No, I just did stage stuff. Well, so, just it's pretty yeah. good. <laughs> so I did. I ended up doing some pretty good regional theater uh, in mm-hmm. DC, particularly mm-hmm. Shakespeare and classical stuff. Wow. Um, yeah, I did a year-long fellowship at the Shakespeare Theater in DC, and then I went back and did a show at the Folger Shakespeare Theater which is also in D.C., um, and that was really great. Uh, but after trying to sort of scrape together acting jobs for a really long time and realizing that, like, there just aren't that many parts for women in classical theater, and as you get older, there are even fewer, hmm. and none of them pay very well at all, right. I just didn't really want the sort of, like, gypsy life that requires. Yeah. Um, Gypsy life meaning you got to travel go all over the country. Yeah, you, you basically just yeah you go where the work is yeah. and you're always on the move. Right, and that didn't really suit my temperament. So I'm interested in the performance aspect of this because um, um, I've interviewed different people in different fields, from entertainment to to um, classical pianist, and um, it's just really fascinating to me when you perform in front of people mm-hmm. how, what's in your head how you do that how you think about that I don't know I mean you just I, did it I like it yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I just like like the attention I don't know I, it's, <laughs> it's thrilling right like it's it's thrilling to get to experience these heightened emotions and situations um and to be communicating that to an audience communicating that to an audience it's it's a real thrill did you ever get nervous um, yeah, but that sort of drops away once you're doing it. Yeah. And I think you get nervous about the things everybody gets nervous about in any career. Like, will people like what I did? Will mm-hmm. it be good enough? Mm-hmm. Um, and you get nervous about the specifics. Like, will I forget my lines? Am I going to remember my blocking? All that stuff. Um, but I didn't get, like, quote unquote, stage fright. You know, right? Yeah. What's blocking? Blocking is where you are, where, like where you here's are where you need to stand when you say this. Walk across the stage now. Yeah, yeah. And everyone's got to know that. Or, or, everyone's got to be on collide. the same page. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the thing you don't think about when you're watching. Yeah. Uh, well, like, if it's good, you don't think about yeah, that's it. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. You think about it if people mess up. <laughs> so uh, yeah, not stage fright, but did you feel like um, I've had this conversation with with some other people about stress, the value of a low level. Of, of stress and energy. Um, like, for example, you know, I do a lot of speaking, and so uh, I'm actually not particularly nervous about it. Mm-hmm. But I like when, like when it's a big deal, um, for whatever reason, usually because I have friends or family or someone right. out that's there. The, yeah, that's, if it's a faceless, nameless yeah. audience, whatever, right? Yeah. But as soon as you know one person out there. But you there, feel that yeah. thing in you, and, and it, it propels you to perform sure. at a higher level. Yeah, I, I mean, I think... If you have real anxiety, obviously it doesn't work this way yeah. and you can't choose to see it as like a fun thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that low level of like sort of tingles and butterflies, I think you can categorize as nerves or you can see as excitement, you know, right. and you can kind of use it to fuel you. Got it. Got it. So uh, we're uh, we're talking to uh, Sarah Malo Christensen. Let's take a short break and come right back. Great. This episode of the SIDCAST is brought to you by communication. Not a product, but a way of thinking. I mean communicating. How do you communicate effectively with, uh, with other people? And the most important thing I could tell you about this is you got to think about your, your customer. you got to think about who it is you're communicating to and are you, are you saying what you want to say in a way that that person will really understand it, will really act in a way that you want them to act. That's probably pretty good advice whether you're a parent or a marketer. And uh, talking to Sarah Malo Christensen is a really good way to help us think about how to communicate effectively. We're back with Sarah. Audiobooks. So you're the maven of audiobooks. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say maven. That's so, a pretty strong word. Uh, I am well, uh, just a denizen of the audiobook community, perhaps. Yeah. So is that a word? What, uh, what does it take to be an audiobook? Uh, what's the word oh, after that? Narrator? Narrator. Um, well, a lot of things. I think people assume that you have to have a beautiful voice, but you really don't. Because people don't, you don't even, 
you know, the, the voice isn't that important. It's the story that you're telling, right? Like when someone's telling you a fascinating story, you're not like, wow, look at those dulcet tones. Like I just can't <laughs> get, like if that's what you're thinking about, you're not listening. Um, so people often are like, oh, should I get into audiobooks? If I've been, I've always been told I had a wonderful voice and like, well, no, <laughs> it's not, not about a, that. No, it's really not. But what about the um, like the, the characters? Yeah, you change I mean, your voice. I think you and have act to, out the characters. Yeah, you, I think you need to you need to have a lot of things. So you need to be a good reader, right? In that mm. you're kind of you've read the book before you're narrating it, but you're you're moving through the page, and your eyes have to be kind of ahead of you, seeing what's coming. So when there's a quote, you know who's saying it, and sort of you have to be a, a fast wow. and able reader. Um, and you have to have good diction, right? When mm-hmm. the way you pronounce words, it mm-hmm. has to be clear. Uh, and that's something I certainly got in acting school, I right. think. Um, right. And then you have to be an actor or a storyteller. So just something very simple and practical. You're not turning pages because that'll make noise. Uh, yes. You're, I mean, that is how it, you used to do it. And some people could turn the pages really quietly, but most people had the editor had to cut that out. Um, but now everybody reads off iPads. So you're just scrolling. So you're using your finger to scroll. Yep. Um, okay. Okay. And um, you use different voices for different characters? Uh-huh. Yeah, you do all the voices and all the accents. I do a ton of really? accents. Yeah. Give me an accent. So this would be like New Zealand, and I do a lot of this. Like, a lot of romances are set in New Zealand right now. And so there's, like, girls who don't like this, and then there's, like, guys from New Zealand who play rugby and are, like, really tough. <laughs> <laughs> and some of them are Maori. Um, yeah, you do all the voices. That's great. It's it's so You're silly. A, I see the acting coming yeah, out here. It's, it's super a, silly when you realized. do it in a vacuum. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. when you're in a booth doing it, mm-hmm. you don't get self-conscious. You just do it. Right. And so you have to have multiple voices. Mm-hmm. For the, for, yeah. yeah. Each character? Yeah. So I mean, each main character. Yeah. You right. know, if there's like someone with one line, they don't. It's maybe distracting if they have a super. Right. right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's really acting. And different narrators have different styles. So some people differentiate between voices, <coughs> excuse me, um, very little, and that works for them. Like Scott Brick is a really famous narrator um, who doesn't do a ton of wildly different voices, um, but he's incredible. And then, uh, Katie Kelgren was another really wonderful narrator who sadly passed away um, uh, last year. And she, listening to her books was like listening to a full cast recording. Like you almost wouldn't even have known it was one person. Mm. Um, So there's room for all the ranges of styles there. Right. Wow. So how'd you start in a thing like that? Somebody gave you a chance to do it? Well, I took a... So... Kind of two things. I took a class um, with a coach and narrator, uh, and that went well. And he was like, oh, you could do this. And I was like, mm. oh, maybe I could. So I set up a little home studio and started doing books on ACX, which is Amazon's platform for independent authors, like independently published authors mm-hmm. looking to mm-hmm. make an audiobook. Mm. Um, so it hooks up oh, them I with see. narrator producers. Okay. Uh, and then I did enough of those that I started getting noticed by publishers and then started getting jobs through publishers and it kind of took off from there. But one reason that I got into it was that I had done a little bit of voiceover stuff for the radio show This American Life. And the way that I got mm. that was that I trained Ira's dog. Oh, my and goodness. So when, Ira Glass. Yeah, Ira Glass's dog. And who so, is truly the super boss, as I would say, of um, a podcast. Yeah. The guy that created the whole thing. Yeah, maybe. And uh, so he knew that I was an actor, and they needed someone to read an interview, to, like, you know, narrate an interview. And he was like, oh, maybe Sarah could do it. So he had me audition, and I got it. And that really, that probably opened the floodgates. Yeah. That's well, it just, I mean. Pretty it, high, high profile. It, well, it certainly is the most it's the thing that I've done that 
friends and family and people I went to school with mm-hmm. have been the most excited about right. ever. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah. Yeah, because they get it. They understand right. that they're he's like, a celebrity oh my God, now. Yeah. And, and I'm like, but that was years ago and I've done right. a bunch of other stuff. And they're like, but this American life. And I'm right. like, I know. I should have just retired. That was like the peak. <laughs> Retire yeah. right at the top after just yeah. doing that. Uh, that's so, so that started to open up really a lot more opportunity. It didn't, actually. It just put the seed in me. Ah, to do okay. it. So yeah. that was early on still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the first thing I ever did. Yeah, with with voiceover or narration. Um so yeah, it just sort of got me interested in it. But it didn't yeah. the audiobook community is very it's wonderful. It's very small and it's very insular. So like even if you do you ha- you ha- if someone who has a big career in voiceover like for commercials or mm-hmm. stuff like that, mm-hmm. there's no crossover. No. Like, those are completely different worlds. You wouldn't worlds. be able to do that or be unlikely to do that, the voiceover? Um, I'd like to get into that, but it's a, I haven't kind of had the time to focus on it yet, and it's just a whole different yeah. world of people that you would have to right. make inroads yeah, with. It's a different yeah. kind of category, different industry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so when you... So how does, how does it work? Like, walk us through... This. So somebody calls you, the producer, a publisher, an editor? Yeah. So a, say it's like someone... So I have a, a book for Penguin Random House coming up, mm-hmm. which is I always love because it's like full circle because that's where I was in editorial assistant. And they're yeah. my publisher as well. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Great. So someone reaches out to me and says, hey, um, there's a book that uh, the producer would like to submit you for. So maybe the author has approval, right? Or the mm-hmm. parent company of whatever the book is, has approval. So you say, yes, I'm available um, mm-hmm. for those dates. Um, please submit me. And then they'll get back to you and say, great news, you were approved. When can you record this? And so you'll look at your schedule and be like, well, I know I can do about three finished hours a day. So if it's a 12-hour book, that'll take four days. Um, I'm booked down a month. So how about these four days? And if it's Penguin, they'll have you come in and do it in the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If it's a smaller publisher, they'll have you do it at your home studio. Um, and so you'll go in, you'll record it, it will go to an editor. Um, when the editor finds all the mistakes that you inevitably made, because you always do, uh, huh. you'll come back in and record pickups for so, those So they problems. just kind of splice in those little bits. Yeah. And you, people, you never know. But just backing up for, for yeah. a second. So um, when you're contacted, mm-hmm. you're, you're being hired for this. Uh like they're not, there's no tryout. Oh, no. There, sometimes there are. Hmm. So it depends. It depends on what agreement is in the author's contract. Right. So if the author has approval, mm-hmm. then they'll be like, uh, probably that maybe they're going to submit three narrators to the author. Right. And the author will pick the one they like. See, that's what happened with with me. Yeah. Uh, for my, my books. Um, three, and you get a little clip, and you, li- you mm-hmm. listen to them, and, uh, and then you pick. Yeah. Yeah. I always, you know what, I... They, they were all good. Who I, did you pick? Oh, I'm not going to remember names. This is bad. <laughs> uh, I'm now going to be blacklisted from this community. Oh, no, no. no. We'll, we'll add it later. <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, they were, they were great. But I, I had a lot of people say, well, I wanted to hear you. It's so hard. I mean, the part that I didn't talk about yet is you have to sit there for eight hours not moving your body because if you're rustling like yeah this mic i'm doing it i don't know how sensitive this mic is but even if you're moving your arms weird little noises your mouth makes yeah sometimes when i get dehydrated my blinks are really loud wow yeah like you can't (laughs) you're a loud blinker yeah it's like a seinfeld episode (laughs) (laughs) she's a loud blinker but like you have to you have to be super conscious of your body (laughs) um you have to have really good breath support and you have to have uh, you have to be an accurate reader, right? If you make mm-hmm. tons of mistakes, it's yeah. going to take you forever. Right, right. Um, and you have to have incredible stamina to sit there and talk and have your mm-hmm. voice sound the same all day and then mm-hmm. the next day and the next. Right. Um, so right. a lot of authors want to read their own books, but it is a rare author who... When, when there's an author who is really good, like Neil Gaiman reads his own books and he's incredible yeah and uh trevor noah read his his book and was incredible right right? so um there are authors who are also have either are performers or sort of have that um i don't know that that are storytellers right Right. uh and then it's wonderful um but if they aren't the book might be better served by having someone who can make it come to life even though that doesn't make sense do you know what i mean yeah 
Well, that's a good explanation now. I'm going to be able to kind of say, listen to Sarah explain why <laughs> I didn't do it because basically she said I'd do a crappy job if no, I did. No, <laughs> but you might think, right? I don't know. But it's also if you but it's a lot want of work. to, it's a lot of work. It, yeah, that's that, uh, that, that was one of the reasons I didn't do it when they described, well, here's what's involved. Yeah. Uh, you go to Michigan for whatever oh, reason. because they probably were sending you to Brilliance, which is a is recording studio. Pro- yes. I, in fact, I think mm-hmm. that that's the company that was given yep, that contract. I mean, there isn't another one in Michigan, so <laughs> that would be it. <laughs> yeah, and, and you're going to lock yourself up and it'll take a week. And right, and the, Brilliance starts their recording at 8.30 in the morning and you'll go till 5. And you'll stay in a little hotel in, uh, and then you'll come in every day and you'll just talk all day. Wow. Yeah. And they're wonderful people. It, it's right. a, I would love, yeah, like, yeah, it's great. I work for Brilliance, but um, it's really hard. And it's hard, I mean, think about, I mean, you you do public speaking, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Like, it takes so much out of you to, like, stand up for an hour and be compelling and, right. like, keep everyone sort of entranced and you're telling this story and you're taking them along and you're, it's exhausting. Right. It's like giving a full day presentation. Mm. It's exhausting. Yeah. So you have to like it. You have to it, want it. So it's it's not just mentally exhausting. It's a physical. You, totally. Co- both. Yeah. Both. Yeah. Huh. And um, do you actually do, like, when you when you work out or do exercise or whatever, do you think about it for that purpose what, or you just want to be healthy? What's exercise? No, I should. I don't. <laughs> um, I, ha- I need to start doing, like, yoga or something because it's messing up my body to sit. I, so most narrators sit. Um, some stand. I've recently started standing because I felt like I was messing up my back and shoulders just by like so sitting frozen all day. you just have to be very, day. like you can't have any of the wrestling that you describe. So you got to be very kind of stiff. Yeah. But well, still, but you can't be stiff because then your the breath voice. will be constricted. So you have to kind of, um, I mean, there's different, like Alexander work is a type of body work that a lot of actors have done sort of alignment and freeing the body and stuff like that. And so... I'm always thinking about like, okay, like, is my head like floating over my shoulders? Oh my, okay. I'm tucking my chin. I need to like release my jaw. I have tension in my tongue, like all that stuff. So yeah, it's a lot. You can, you, you can not only do yoga, you should learn how to teach yoga (laughs) because you can connect it to what you're doing. Isn't it interesting when you start to dig into the the nitty gritty of any job, Mm -hmm. it's like so many levels that nobody, I mean, hardly anyone even thinks about, even imagines. No, they don't. You know, and I'm kind of close to the business and you're telling me stuff that I had no clue. Yeah. Wow. Um, But yeah, I mean, people who, a lot of people, I think, underestimate how challenging narrating is. And so one thing someone I know says when people come to him and are like, oh, I'd like to do this. He's like, okay, like, um, go into your closet and read without stopping for two hours. And if you like that, come back. Wow. And like nobody comes Nobody's going to come back with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's dark in here. Yeah. I can't see anything. Let me out. Um, so do you remember, uh, like the first time you, you did a professional audio book, do you remember the book? Uh, yeah. The, the first one I did for through oh, ACX for an independent right. you did You did a few through kind of the mm-hmm. Amazon yeah. platform. Yeah. I do remember. I remember the first publisher book I got. Yeah. What was it? It was, well, so I narrate. Like many narrators, I narrate some books under a pseudonym. I do romance books under a pseudonym. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like authors have pen names. Um, so it was under my pseudonym. Uh, Which you're not going to tell us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not, I don't, you can find it on the internet. I'm not very secretive about it. Right. I mostly, I mostly started that way because I was still tutoring and I really didn't want teenagers that I was tutoring to easily be able to find me uh. reading romantic scenes allowed. That's probably not the best yeah, uh, juxtaposition like, right nah. there. Yeah, like <laughs> nah. maybe, I don't think. Bad idea. Not necessary. Um, but now that pseudonym is like more popular than me, so I can't really? get rid of her now. So you do, you can't get yeah. rid of her. You do more um, narrating of uh, romantic books. I, I think half and half. Half and half. Yeah. Um, but so yeah. Was that an acquired take? Like how do you... So I never read those books before. Those like, I, books. Those books. I could imagine. I saw them at the supermarket. No, <laughs> um, I didn't. I don't think I had a great amount of respect for the genre. But now that I have narrated a lot of them, like I really do. Like I, I see because they're not. I mean, certainly some are trash, like in any genre, right? Mm-hmm, like there's mm-hmm. plenty of trash sure. sci-fi and fantasy, um, but some of them are wonderful, funny entertaining books that also happen to have sex and romance in them. Um, 
And the community of romance audio listeners is like rabid and loving. Like it, these books keep people going through tough times. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have so much more respect for the romance genre than I ever could have imagined. And there are a lot of them, right? Uh, romance books? Yeah. Yeah. It's like it a huge a section of the publishing industry. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it's one of the places where there's people are still buying a lot of books. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it, it sort of gets treated like the redheaded stepchild of publishing, which is unfair because it's uh, just as difficult to write and mm-hmm. quality and also like just as it, it is totally like in some markets keeping publishing going. Yeah. So that's a, another thing I was thinking yeah. of because it's a little bit like, um, well, it's another, not a, it's another one of these winner take all type industries uh-huh. where there's a, there are a few books that sell so much yeah. and make so much money that it helps subsidize so many others. I mean, I think about, you know, among the many things that Michelle Obama has done for America, writing, <laughs> becoming, writing that book, yeah. has probably subsidized thousands of writers totally. <laughs> where, where publishers are willing to take a chance on someone mm-hmm. who might not have otherwise had that chance. Yeah. Um, um, but it sounds like for romantic novels, I don't know about all of them, but many of them, I don't know. I don't know if the word is most, but certainly many of them, they, they pay their way. I think they do. Yeah. I mean, they definitely do. And I think the Fifty Shades of Grey books for all of the, mm-hmm. uh, their, whether you think they have value or not, they like cracked open the industry. Do you know what I mean? Really? Because they sold millions. Like they're incredibly successful. And I think they helped publishers see that this market is there. So this is a segment that's growing. I think so. I don't know. I don't know the numbers, yeah. but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I just went to a, <laughs> so I went to a, a romance author convention. Oh, as, now that's something I'd like to be at yeah, to see, just to watch wild. that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, as my pseudonym, um, yes. which is sort of life. It's funny. So everybody knew you. Yeah. Uh, well, not everybody. Oh, I mean, a lot of people um, knew yeah. you. Wow, but, they're but so-and-so. You, I know. But you meet, you know, the, the community isn't like a bunch of wild freaks. It's like yeah. moms and people. normal people. Yeah. yeah who just want to escape into a fun book. So what, what happens at the conference? You just talk about books and... Yeah, authors uh, go to seminars. Like, it's like any business conference, right? So yeah. they go to seminars about writing and mm-hmm. marketing and how to get into publishing. And then there's also signings where fans come and authors and sometimes narrators sit at tables and sign their stuff. Really? Yeah. It's, Have you done that? Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's totally weird and totally delightful. So are people listening to books more than reading them these days? Mm. I don't know about more I than, don't but know that, about more, but, but it, it, it's a, there are some people who only listen. Yeah. Um, and then some people who do It's both. a really different experience. I just recently started, I have some friends that are always listening to books. Yeah. And I, first time I was the old fashioned guy with the real book. Uh-huh. And then I went over to kind of Kindle or yeah. iPad or whatever. Um, and now I started listening, um, only the last few books that I've read and they're fantastic. Yeah, it's a really different experience. And I think part of what makes people choose is like when they have time. So if you're driving or if you're walking the dog, that's or, right. you know, that's when it's easier to do that. Uh, I find it harder to absorb information in audio. Yeah. I think I'm more of a visual learner. Mm-hmm. And so if it's nonfiction, sometimes I just like can't do audio. Yeah, I'm sure that I'm, it isn't, um, is it nonfiction? Yes. The one that, there's a book, um, uh, on Churchill, there's many books, but there's yeah. a great book on Churchill. It's must be I don't know, 60, 70 hours, if you can imagine oh. how long that is. So it's probably the written book, physical book, is a thousand pages. Yeah, and I'm uh, I'm almost towards the end, and I've loved I've loved it. In the I narrator. wonder who the narrator is. Uh, boy, once again, it's, uh, <laughs> everyone in your field saying, "Look at this guy." Nobody remembers who we are, but he was great, and he does Churchill's voice. Really, oh, really? Really? Great. Is it a British guy? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And, and actually a bunch of other um, major characters he does uh, cool. as well. And um, so I'm listening and I'm walking or wherever, and I'm thinking, boy, I would like to write this down. I mean, this is like great because Churchill, the, the, the quotes from Churchill are yeah. fantastic. Um, and sometimes I stop and I do something. Yeah. Although there's a, you can clip a, it. A little bookmark or clip, yeah. Yeah, yeah which 
which which I did a little bit of. But it's um, it's harder to, to kind of keep track. Definitely. of. Definitely, and that's actually I I do a lot of nonfiction books. I think because I have a voice. You know, I don't have like a little girl voice. I have a voice that can sound like educated and informed, and mm-hmm. um, I get a lot of nonfiction books. And it's always a question of, are you going to do the voices, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so for some, it doesn't make sense. Like, it's presented as a quote, and it would be distracting and strange. Um, mm-hmm. For some, it's more of a, a story, and if you don't, it would be flat. Right. Do you, do you decide about that? Or you work with uh, the editor if I'm, on that? Or if I'm team? doing it at home, I decide. Yeah. If I'm doing it in a studio and I have a director, mm-hmm. I'll ask them what they think. Right. Um, but you don't always get a director. You, you do a lot of self-directing and deciding wow it's like it's i mean it's a big thing for the sales of a of a book more and more and they kind of leave you alone to do it yeah well they kind of have to pick someone they trust to take care of it for sure yeah so um uh you do a lot of characters then for fiction yeah for fiction um, I want to hear some more (laughs) what do you you (laughs) got up your sleeve (laughs) too hard that's like Asking, I know. Well, you're also an actress at the same time. I know it's impossible, but it also feels so silly. Like, you know, like kids' voices. Like, you have to do them in a book. But if you, of course, you don't sound like a real kid, you know. But it's like the suspension of disbelief. Like, right. So when you're listening, yeah, you're like, oh, okay, that's the kid's voice. Yeah. Um, right, right. But no, you feel ridiculous doing. I feel ridiculous. I'm going to ask you again, though, for a little <laughs> reason. <laughs> no. um, okay, so why don't we? Uh, well, well, uh, um, I was going to say, well, up the ante, and you can be a romantic character, but that no, might be more complicated. It's not. They, so that's actually an easy thing to explain because you yeah. always people who are maybe first getting into narrating romance yeah. think you have to do like a sexy voice, yeah. but you—that's terrible. <laughs> like you, you start <laughs> laughing at it at right. some point. Yeah, and the characters in in romance novels don't know that they're characters in romance novels. They think they're just living their lives, right. like any character in any book. Um, so you right. have to right, right. respect them enough to make them people as Got opposed it. to like Got it. weird, sexy caricatures. So, so now you made me think, because that, that, that sexy voice is a deeper voice. Yeah, it's, I mean, it which is that not way to what my... romance novels want. They no. want girls who sound like young and fresh and like, oh, I'm just new in the world. And I just <laughs> met this billionaire and he's really scary, but I like him. Yeah. He's billionaire. That's all. They're all billionaire, <laughs> they're all billionaire werewolf used playboys. To, yeah. They used to be millionaires. Now they're billionaires. Yeah. Um, a mere millionaire would not be enough. Not be, yeah. not be enough. But I don't know whether you... Not in this uh, economy. <laughs> I don't know whether you followed them. Um, a story about Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos. Yes, I did. And I, I haven't seen the documentary yet, but I can't wait. But you're asking me about her voice, I right? am asking about the yeah. voice. That's right. Because um, she did like a very serious, that's, like, that's I'm close. a serious, a ver- like, very San deep. Francisco. And apparently she was not only she, but I was talking to um, a couple of my students. And they said that they um, have had training before mm-hmm. coming back to business school. Yeah. Um, that is common for women to be trained to speak more with a deeper voice to be treated more seriously. Yeah. And I was appalled to hear that, but well, maybe I'm just. I'm kind sort of. Being, of a, it's really tricky uh, because the. So in our society, the women already sort of start out in business not being taken as seriously, right? And if you sound like a little girl, mm. like I feel like people have said this about Kristen Gillibrand, um, but maybe I'm thinking of someone else who's a Dartmouth grad, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like any politician who has like a higher voice or sounds like this, like immediately no one cares. Right. Like how could that person possibly mm-hmm. have authority? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, <clears throat> uh, sorry, <clears throat> Women are also criticized for upspeak. Like, if you right. end your sentences like this, right, right, no right. one's going to believe anything right. you're saying mm-hmm. um, because you sound like you don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And then also, if you have vocal fry, which sounds like this, and like, it, so it's sort of, it's when you don't put enough breath behind your words, um, they sound crackly. It sounds emotional. Uh, it sounds weak, right? Weak. So, like, it's sort of like talking like this. Ah. Um, and people think you sound like a dumb valley girl or something. So, but if you talk too deeply and resonantly, people think you sound like a joke. You know, mm-hmm. so women have such a hard time sounding not shrill, not fake, not too old, not too young. Like you have to have this perfect medium tone, confident but not pushy voice to be taken seriously as a leader in business or politics. And it's ridiculous, but true enough that... <clears throat> 
that women in those fields have to consider it. It's it sounds like a real fine line. You got to thread the needle yeah. among many many <coughs> things. Yeah, it sounds like um, you. Um, I mean, it sounds like you would be very um, uh, effective at working with uh, students um, and people, women in business, maybe earlier in their career in particular, when they're starting to think about this. Uh, part of me says... It makes me so we, mad we that they have to. We yeah. should, exactly. We shouldn't do that. Um, yeah. And, and, like, just don't do it. I would be an angry teacher. Maybe effective, but also, like, yeah. embittered and full of rage. <laughs> you know this, uh, the, the, the student... Um, that was telling me the other uh, the other day about um, training that she got uh, before going back to business school. She said also, what, what did you call it? the up upspeak? The upspeak. Mm-hmm. So apparently, men and women do use upspeak almost as much, almost equally, according to her, which was a surprise. But yeah. let's say, uh, but it's when women are are, are using upspeak, they're the ones that are being criticized and, and, and evaluated yeah. as opposed to when men do it when That's they interesting. don't pay as much attention. I don't know if it's 50-50, but it's not like 100-0. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit more balanced. It, when I think about doing, because of course in all of these fiction books that I narrate, you have to do men's voices too. Yeah. And so I'll never sound, I mean, I have a fairly deep voice for a woman, but I'll never sound like a man. Um, but the things that you can do to differentiate those voices from women's voices are flatten your tone. So like... Um, women's voices and men who are maybe uh, present themselves more um, in a more feminine way, there's a lot of range in their pitch and tone and you go up and down and you're like mm. going, you know, up and down the register and you're telling a story. And when men talk, they kind of talk much more flatter, mm. like much more flatterer. <laughs> um, they, they talk in a more flatter way. They sort of more direct and flat. And then at the end of the sentence, maybe it goes down. And so it's just a more sort of like direct flat way of speaking Whereas a woman would be more up and down and right. my tone, like I'm not, those pitches aren't really different. Yeah. But, but when you're presenting, really, well, this is a little different, but when you're presenting or people on the news, you know, mm-hmm. even newscasters, yeah. if they're all talking in a flat tone all the way through, you're missing it's some boring. intonation. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and so, um, when I've seen great speakers, uh, sometimes they'll almost, um, almost whisper at times to kind of get yeah. people to lean it's dramatic, in. And, yeah. Right. That's um, sort of a power play too, to like talk more quietly. So people have to listen. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's very interesting. Yeah. You and think about this stuff, yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's why it would be good to talk about that and uh yeah. um and and help uh, help train uh, another generation. Yeah, I think I think I'm just too angry and <laughs> embittered about but that would women give you in huge, our society. It would give you huge credibility as opposed to the person who says, Oh, you gotta do this, you gotta do this and not have any of that kind of moral compass in there. Yeah. Uh, I hope yeah. most vocal co- I mean there's there's wonderful vocal coaches who Yeah, yeah. Can obviously do a much better yeah. job than I can. So let's take uh, one more quick break okay. and come back with Sarah. Okay, we're back with Sarah, and now I want to talk about yet another career, dog trainer. How did you get into that? Well, um, when I moved to New York, I was 23 or 24, and I got this job working in publishing, and it was the first time I'd sort of been on my own in a big city, and I really wanted a dog. Um, and so I got one, which was so stupid because I was mm. 23 or 24 and like, didn't know what I was doing and was like, Oh, this one looks good. Um, so I fell in love with this little, um, pit bull mix on pet finder, which is like, you know, online dating for dogs who need to be adopted. Uh, say that again. So <laughs> there pet, is such a yeah, thing. I mean, it, it's a site where you can search through adoptable animals. I see. Uh, in your area. Okay. And so I totally fell for her and adopted her. And her name was Sugar Mama when I got her, which I changed (laughs) (laughs) Uh, to Sophie. Um, And she was this beautiful little 40-pound fawn-colored pit bull who had been found on the street in Bushwick in Brooklyn, having just given birth to puppies, but there were no puppies, which is a very common way that pits are found because they're bred and then dumped when they're no longer useful. Uh, and she was so sweet. Um, but she had been mauled by other dogs and sort of had all these bad experiences. And so she had a lot of issues with other dogs, um, which I was completely unprepared to handle. Mm. Uh, and so I found a trainer who could help me with her um, sort of socializing her and working on her aggression with other dogs. Um, 
And that was so interesting and so fulfilling that it made sense to apprentice to that trainer right. to do uh, it for real when I was in acting school. Yeah. Why did you choose to adopt a pit bull? Um, because they're like a nice size and they have short fur and they are wonderful and like need more advocates. You weren't, you weren't scared off no, on their reputation. No, not at all. And, but well, the thing is, um, their reputation is really incorrect. Like what they are more likely to have is aggression issues with other animals, but with people, I've never been bitten by a pit bull and I've been bitten by a lot of dogs, training dogs for 15 years. Um, I'm m- much more confident about going up to a pit I don't know than a, I don't know, German Shepherd or mm. Chow or any other breed. But, you know, they, many of them have been abused and they are pretty high energy, intense dogs. And so that's a really bad combo. Yeah. Um, but they're just big terriers mm. like Jack Russell's or anything else. Right. Um, and they can be absolutely wonderful. I could see how much you love dogs just yeah. <laughs> watching you answer <laughs> well, these questions. Well, this, right? this, I mean, this dog changed my life wow. because I, I wasn't ready for her. Like I wasn't, I, I was a mess. Like I, you know, I was like partying too much, not an unusual amount, but mm. too much to be like a parent, a responsible parent. <laughs> like I needed to, in order to help her gain the confidence that she needed to be okay in the world, like I needed to um, become more responsible. I needed to get my own emotions and anxieties in check so that I could be what she needed. Yeah. Um, I needed to like learn how to put my stuff aside and sort of uh, pay attention and listen and give her confidence. And I, I think my my whole life would be different if I had not adopted her and then committed to becoming the kind of owner that she needed. And then, you know, through my work with other dogs, um, after I finished that apprenticeship to the trainer, I still work for that same trainer. Now only I see like just one or two dogs a week because I can't tear myself away from these clients I've had for so long. But for a long time, I was doing it five days a week and wow. seeing, you know, four or five dogs a day. And, um, I I grew up because I had to to take care of her. It sounds like um, taking care of a dog, the dog trained you. Yeah, well, she certainly, I mean, in some ways I imagine like having a kid is similar where you're like, oh, I was not ready for this. Yeah, and then you, you just, get ready. You, you, <laughs> yeah. you got no choice. Yeah, you do it. You do it. And I, I mean, some people certainly occasionally with kids much more often with dogs are like oh i don't want this and yeah. they give it up and right. i didn't see that as a yeah. option so you you start being a dog trainer so what what's involved with that how do you do that um well it can be a lot of things uh some of it is people who want help with house training or obedience for their puppy but what i ended up doing a lot more is people who have major behavior problems to deal with so like the dog is biting people or biting other dogs Mm. or has separation anxiety or major fear and won't walk outside and stuff like that so you go you talk to the person kind of get a feel for what the problem is look at look at the dog look at what's happening and then you develop a behavior modification plan right wow yeah you learned all that kind of the core skills from from being an apprentice yeah and then on the job too on but the yeah job, sure it's like you know you use classical behavior modification techniques and then you study newer tools like clicker training and um you ever see that show the dog whisperer i hate it he's so, a monster really yeah he's he's i mean how do you get so famous if he's because just... he because it puts so okay <laughs> okay <laughs> calm down so uh he he uses very outmoded and outdated techniques that not only are cruel, but don't work. So they work in the moment in the same way that hitting your kid would work in the moment. They're going to stop doing it. Mm -hmm. Right. But you didn't solve the problem. And when you leave, they're going to do it again, or they're going to have other problems. So you can bully a dog into behaving in the moment. Like I have, you know, I have 15 years of dog handling skills. Like mm-hmm. I can make a dog do what I want, yep. but that doesn't help 
the owner be able to do that? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't really solve the problem because no dog is just being a jerk. I mean, not with major problems. Dogs are jerks just like people about <laughs> silly stuff. But like if a dog is biting or, you know, or, you know, barking at other dogs or getting in fights or growling at their owner, like all that stuff comes from fear and confusion mm. and sort of dominating a dog doesn't solve those problems. And so he would, the dog whisperer would come in sort of like dominate the dog and often, you know, get the dog into what he would call like common submissive, which is really um, emotionally shut down. Mm. And often dogs in that situation will pee on themselves because they're so scared and frozen. Mm. Um, so it's, uh, I think in the later years of the show, he got a little better um, in terms of using positive reinforcement techniques. Um, but in the beginning, I think that show did a lot of damage to the way people interact with their dogs. It's just amazing that the show became, what do I know about dog training? I mentioned it to you. Those are, that's a, you can sort of like get an, a visually impressive result Mm -hmm. in a 30 minute show Mm -hmm. by kind of being like, look how I can make this dog behave. Mm. Uh, But behavior modification in dogs, just like in people is long and slow and boring. Like it doesn't happen right away. Um, the things that I do, he's right about are dogs need way more exercise than most of them get. Mm. Right. And they need a lot of structure and rules. Um, just like kids, like Mm. they need to know to feel safe and confident. They need to know like what's expected of me. How are things going to work? Interesting. Now who, um, so who hires you to be a dog trainer? Um, uh, we don't really advertise, but, just like word of mouth people hear about our company. Yeah. And so we actually get a lot of a a really wide range of clients. Some people who are like I was when I first got my dog Mm -hmm. were like, Oh no, (laughs) like I have made a big mistake and like I have a real problem and I don't really (laughs) have the money, but like I need to fix this. So like, let's work on it. Mm -hmm. And then we have a lot of really high profile clients who Mm -hmm. want us to come to their beautiful townhomes five days a week and work with the dog forever. Forever? <laughs> yeah, somewhere forever. They're outsourcing being the dog owner. Right. Yeah, some. Wow. Yeah, it's not ideal. No. Um, but it makes those dogs' lives a lot better. So. And what, why do they want a dog then if they don't want to interact <clears throat> with the dog? I don't know. Why do some people have kids? Like, people, dogs are beautiful and people remember the dogs they had as a kid that mm. they played with and... Mm didn't have to do the hard taking care of stuff for yeah. and maybe they lived in the country and a lot less was required of the dog and they think it'll be easy and then they're disappointed when it's not um it just sounds so odd because you, you get so much more out of putting in the effort and the interaction and the and the love and everything else yeah that's what that's why you're living to do those things. Yeah. I mean, I think some people too just get in over their heads, you yeah, know. Yeah, sure. They didn't expect it would be so difficult or or mm. life gets in the way and you know, they have family and health issues and work and they can't give the dog what it needs. Um but a lot of people really want to, they just don't know how. Sure. And so you get a really interesting insight into all of these people's lives when you go to their homes and you talk to them about their day-to-day and you see, like, you know, it's like counseling. <laughs> like, you see a lot of, like, tears and... Counseling like, for the dog for, owner? For the people. Because, you know, they're telling, you're, you're telling them how they need to change their behavior with the dog. And mm. they're telling you why that's hard. And, you know, it's sort of like, I don't know, being a social worker. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's really rewarding when the person is willing to do is willing to make the changes they need to make. Right. But it's frustrating when they're not. What interesting um, insight and experience you get from this job. It's <laughs> yeah. not what I would have would have guessed, um, uh, which means uh, makes me think also of a common question of the SIDCast I'd like to ask about advice to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether you have, uh, you have something for yourself, but uh, um, in addition to dog owners, but uh, if you can kind of magically transport yourself back to uh, kind of sit next to 21-year-old Sarah, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, who may have been actually not sitting but lying on the couch. Um, <laughs> and uh, what, what would you tell her? Um, I guess I would tell myself to 
sort of try to hold on to things a little less tightly and Mm. be a little kinder to myself Mm. and sort of be more open to possibilities and what might happen and sort of following the flow of life rather than feeling like I had Mm. to know or get it right. That's so interesting. And many people answer that question with a version, different words, but that, that theme uh, because people think they got to do, you know, step one, step two, and you got to right. get there. And we we tend to be focused on kind of the the the, the, the end of the, of the game as opposed to the process of getting there. And the process is everything. Yeah. And that's the thing that's um, that's a hard lesson when people are you know smart and aggressive and ambitious and high aspiration. You want to do all this stuff, which is good. It's good to want to do a lot of stuff, but yeah. it's the process of getting there. And also, what you think will might be fulfilling or the success that you imagine would make you feel good is never what you thought it would be right mm. like i saw some stupid quote on facebook or whatever the other day that was like remember when you wanted what you have now or it was something that was worded better than that but yeah. the the message was like remember when what you have right now was what you dreamed about mm. and now it seems like ugh, nothing like i want something better mm. <laughs> and like that's always going to be true like that it, is always true. no level of success will ever make you feel magically good about yourself or something that you it won't give you something you don't already have you know yeah other than a little more money which would be really <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that yeah. with that part but then there's always something else to replace it it's really uh remarkable you see some of the you mentioned billionaires uh, it's really amazing what drives them the ones i work with or talk to yeah. or interviewed at um, they're they're in the game of um, having a scoreboard, yeah. and there's very few people they care about that are looking at that scoreboard. But right. they care a lot about those people, right. and they are their peers more or less. Yeah. and they want to be first, and that keeps driving and driving. What do you get at the end of the day? I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know, but um, we're not going to solve every problem. Okay, um, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, although it sounds like if more people had dogs, and then you know started to think about if they're committed to them yeah you have to you have to be willing i mean i don't know uh i don't have kids but i think it's the same right like if you you have to be into Mm. becoming what that dependent needs you to be because there's a lot of people who if they got a dog would just not take very good care of the dog (laughs) and wouldn't change um Mm. so a dog just like a kid isn't going to make you a better person but if you're open to it, it certainly will. So now I have to tell you about my dog. Okay, yeah. Uh, no longer with us in doggy heaven. Aww. Chelsea the dog, a golden Aww. retriever. Aww. I never had a dog growing up, but um, um, as an adult, um, actually, when our daughter was um, very young, I should really know how old, but very young. <laughs> Under five? We, yeah, around that. Okay. Uh, around five, yeah. Um, we got a dog, uh, Chelsea, the, Chelsea the dog. Mm-hmm. And... Goldens, of course, are renowned for their love. They're uh, sweet. Yeah. And um, a lot of people over the years have helped us take care of Chelsea for um, a day or for a week. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them are students, ex-students. Yeah. And they always ask me about Chelsea whenever I see any of these yeah. people. It's really kind of funny how a dog could have that type of impact. Yeah. I would not have um, anticipated. I knew it would be great and fun, but I would not anticipate this. Like today, it's... Chelsea has um, 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 is gone 10 years. Wow. And I remember that dog yeah. so perfectly. Yeah. Um, I was just joking about it the other day that um, she would be sound, she could be sound asleep upstairs. I was thinking about this in the context of stretching and exercising. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, when you're, you're sitting and you're a little stiff, it takes a while to stretch. Right. And, and now I'm thinking, and, and I was reminded of Chelsea, she's upstairs and she's certainly sleeping on her little doggy bed and I'd come in for example and uh, first she'd hear the door open right. but in case it was a really deep sleep I'd say Chelsea uh-huh. and you'd hear this dog come flying down the step <laughs> bounding zero and, to sixty and, yeah, yeah and, and I'm thinking wow I never pulled a muscle I mean not that I was aware <laughs> of never got never got sore from from any of that yeah none of those things yeah there I mean Sophie my dog was she was just the kindest soul like once she got over her fear of other dogs. She was just the most tolerant, wise, kind animal who would just put up with literally anything. Like I got cats 
and they would attack her and she would just sit there looking at me sadly like uh, bleeding like do you see what's happening like I just want you to know like she was the sweetest dog and when she passed away a couple years ago um I was blown away by how many you know I posted about it on social media and mm-hmm. so so many people she had been important to so many people right yeah right. and I'm actually <laughs> I just because I'm old and can be kooky now i am commissioning a painting of her oh my <laughs> goodness friends. really yeah. <laughs> because i i miss her and i i want to commemorate her yeah and i just uh yeah so i know it's like a weird weird old cat lady thing to do but i'm doing it so <laughs> when my uh so when chelsea the dog uh passed away we actually had a friend dog loving friends gave us a scrapbook oh nice yeah chelsea pictures and things and I guess uh, with some notes it was really something yeah yes yeah, it's, it's it's huge you know, they're huge dogs and, are human too yeah and they, <laughs> they're with us through t- I mean I got her when I was like 23 and she died when I was like 36 so those yep. are pretty right. important years absolutely <laughs> absolutely wow well um it's been so much fun talking to yeah, you Sarah I really enjoyed thank too. you for coming in My and pleasure. um I'm sure a lot of people have a lot of lessons uh, about all sorts of things from our conversation. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I don't think of myself as someone who has tons of wisdom to offer, but if anyone can take anything from I, it, I'm glad. I'm sure they are. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you. <laughs>